Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, Drew Von Sayo bringing you the lace with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. As we have breaking news with the Pittsburgh Penguins. That is right. Kasperi Kapanen held out of practice today, being placed on waivers by Ron Hextall. Wow. This is not something that anybody saw coming. It was released within the past few days by Elliot Friedman that the Penguins were actively looking to trade Kisberry Kapanen. Ron Hextall even receiving a trade call about Kapanen earlier in the season, but opting to hold on to him. And now... Hextall making the move to go out there and just outright wave Kisberry Kapanen. I mean, that is, again, not something anybody would expect. Now, of course, there is the opportunity that Kisberry Kapanen can still end up with the Penguins organization and head down to Wilkes-Barre Scranton. That is if nobody were to claim him. And if that were the case, he would still count for just a little bit over $2 million worth of the Penguins' salary cap. Now, if a team were to claim Kisberry Kapanen, all of his $3.2 million would be off the table as far as giving Penguins some salary cap space. Now... Again, this is not anything that I was expecting. If this would have been news about Kapanen being traded, I would have been a little bit less surprised. But for Kapanen to completely just be put on waivers was not something that I was expecting. And then, of course, Mike Sullivan saying after their 25-minute practice today. Yes, you heard that correctly. Practice today for the Penguins was just 25 minutes long. And Sullivan saying that, you know, change is inevitable because a team doesn't live up to their expectations, um, stating that Kapanen is a talented player and that it's on everybody in the Penguins organization because they didn't maximize his potential. Now, in a way, yes, the Penguins did fail Kasperi Kapanen. But the Penguins cannot control the fact that Kasperi Kapanen also failed Kasperi Kapanen. That third line for the Penguins has been horrendous all season long of Carter centering McGinn on the left and Kapanen on the right. And it was about time that a move was finally made to change something with that third line. And Ron Hextall is going to be speaking very soon. So again, whenever we get any sort of update about what Ron Hextall is saying, I will be sure to pass that along. Now, interestingly enough, Jan Ruda needs to be activated off of injured reserve. Is the whole purpose of getting rid of Kisberry Kapanen simply because the fact that they want Jan Ruda back? If that is, in fact, the case, then in a way it's going to be a little bit 
disappointing because Kasperi Kapanen shouldn't just be a salary cap sacrifice. Getting rid of Kasperi Kapanen needs to be a motive to go out and bring in new players. Because right now, there is a huge disconnect between Mike Sullivan and Ron Hextall, which is in part why this current Penguins team is in the state that they are. Just a week ago, when I was on the air here, I was talking about the Penguins having several games in hand over the New York Islanders, how many points they could be clear of them for that wild card spot if they won all of those games in hand, and the fact that then at that time they could push to become one of the top three teams in the Metropolitan Division. Well, hell, if you look at the standings now, the Penguins are not only not in one of the top three in the Metropolitan, they're not in a wild card spot, and they aren't even right on the doorstep for the wild card spot. I mean, as far as points are concerned, they are, but they would have to surpass Florida and now Detroit to get into a wild card spot. The Red Wings hold that last wild card position. And interestingly enough, the Capitals, who a week ago were the number one wild card team, have fallen even lower than the Penguins. The Capitals are a point behind the Penguins and have played three more games. Of course, not that anybody in Pittsburgh cares about how much of a disaster the Capitals are other than the perspective of being able to laugh at their suffering, but the people in Washington can do the same for Pittsburgh. I'm not even going to get into the details of the absolute demolishing that the Oilers put on the Penguins last night other than the fact that it was flat-out embarrassing and... There's no reason for the Penguins to be outshot by 20 by any team. But you know things are terrible for the Penguins. You know they are terrible when it is not even the end of the second period and fans are starting a chant. Now, this chant is not just any given chant in favor of the Penguins. It's about as far of a pro-Penguin chant as it can get. And I'm just going to play it here for you all to hear. have it now that chant went on for quite some time as the those in attendance last night at ppg paints arena actively urging fenway sports group to fire ron hextall when is the last time you have been to a penguin game or even if you weren't there last night seen a video 
or simply just heard about the Penguins fans actively voicing their frustration and wanting a general manager or anybody fired. Of course, that is an entirely different level than simply booing. You know, when the team doesn't want to shoot on the power play or booing after they get beaten like they did last night. You have fans actively chanting for the general manager to be fired. What a rare sight that is. But in all honesty, I think it's something that needs to be done. Ron Hextall has turned this Penguins team into a dumpster fire. And in part, yes, I'm going to blame Mario Lemieux. Because when Jim Rutherford stepped away, I know there was major desperation in the middle of a season to bring in a general manager. But you did not have to go after Ron Hextall. And I'm not just saying that because Ron Hextall is a former Philadelphia Flyer. I could care less what team he used to play for. But there is a reason why Ron Hextall had been fired from the Flyers and was available for the Penguins to get. Because Ron Hextall drove the Philadelphia Flyers organization into the ground with the exception of drafting a few players. The biggest ones being Ivan Provorov and I believe Carter Hart, who has had his ups and downs. Those are the two biggest names that Ron Hextall drafted for the Flyers organization as far as ones that have produced at the NHL level. Nobody that Hextall has drafted. Now, granted, Ron Hextall has only had two drafts in his time with the Penguins, but there is not a single player that Ron Hextall drafted who is appearing to be wowing anybody in the minor leagues or overseas, which is very concerning because Ron Hextall is much more conservative than than Jim Rutherford was, not always going to trade away that first-round draft pick. But to have Hextall here in Pittsburgh, you knew there was always going to be a steep hill to climb because of the Penguins-Flyers rivalry and a lack of trust from the fan base. But aside from that, Ron Hextall has done just about everything wrong with the Penguins that you could imagine. I mean, he signed Kasperi Kapanen to a two-year, $6.4 million contract. That's why Kapanen's making $3.2 million this year, $3.2 million next year. Jeff Carter protected Jeff Carter at 35 years old from an expansion draft with the Seattle Kraken as opposed to protecting somebody like Jared McCann or Brandon Tanev, protecting Carter, and then not only that, giving Jeff Carter a two-year extension. That is ridiculous right there. I'm not going to blame Hextall for making the Jeff Carter trade. Because at the time, the Penguins did desperately need a third-line center. And when Jeff Carter first came to Pittsburgh, 
he filled the void that the Penguins had not had filled since Nick Benino left. When Carter first came over from the LA Kings, he was a great third-line center. When the calendar flipped around and a full year started, that was when things started to go south for Pittsburgh. So again, I'm not going to blame Hextall for trading for Jeff Carter. I'm going to blame Hextall for extending Jeff Carter, along with the deal that he signed Kisperi Kapanen into. Ron Hextall did not bring back Evan Rodriguez from last season. Evan Rodriguez was the only forward from last year that the Penguins had who was not retained. They they sent out Rodriguez, let him walk in free agency, signed Josh Archibald, and then also brought in Ryan Paling via trade with the Montreal Canadiens. So right now, the Penguins, yes, they got an extra forward, but let's just look at the numbers here. Ryan Paling for the Penguins this season. Five goals, six assists, 11 points. Josh Archibald, so far this season, seven points, four goals, three assists. So the Penguins have gotten 18 points out of Archibald and Paling. Evan Rodriguez this season. For the Colorado Avalanche, has 11 goals, 15 points. 15 assists, rather, for 26 points. Rodriguez is posting better numbers than Paling and Archibald combined. And that was a move Ron Hextall wanted to make and opted to make for what? Why bring back Danton Heinen? I get it. It was a one-year deal. But Heinen was very unlikely to put up the same numbers that he did last year. Heinen was the guy, if all of you remember, had a goal in three of the first four games of the 2021-2022 regular season. Something along those lines, ridiculous numbers. And then over the course of the season, went on to produce 18 goals, 15 assists, which were goals were a career high. Assist was tied for third as far as the most for him in one season. His best number was 31 assists in the 2017-2018 season with the Boston Bruins. And now Heinen back down to five goals, 10 assists, very similar numbers to what he had his last season in Anaheim before becoming a free agent and the Penguins were able to sign him. Very similar numbers to what he posted in his last season in Boston before he left the Bruins and went to the Ducks. So again, Heinen should not, in my opinion, have been brought back. I like that it was a one-year, $1 million deal, so in a way I can't be too upset about it, but the fact is that Heinen should be more of a fourth-line guy when he is 
in the lineup as opposed to the third line. And half the time, Danton Heinen's not even in the lineup because of Mike Sullivan's stubbornness and refusal to move Brock McGinn or Kasperi Kapanen or, hell, even move Jeff Carter. And speaking of Brock McGinn, he's another player that Ron Hextall decided to bring back. And not only that, Hextall signed Brock McGinn to a four-year, $11 million contract. This is the second year of that deal. So the Penguins, after this season, still have two full years of Brock McGinn, who is atrocious for them. Same age as Evan Rodriguez, let me remind you. And the Penguins have two more seasons worth of Brock McGinn. Why? Why is Brock McGinn worthy of a four-year, $11 million contract? If you look at his numbers, Brock McGinn has not scored more than 16 goals in a season. And that was back in the 17-18 season with Carolina. And you're going you're gonna to pay him $2.75 million a year. For what? For him to be a worthless third liner? Because that's about what they're paying him for right now. It's absolutely insane that this is what the Penguins are paying Brock McGinn to do. And then you look at this fourth line that the Penguins have that Ron Hextall put together. It is truly just as atrocious. I have no idea what in the hell happened to Teddy Bluger, but that man has fallen off a cliff and then some. I mean, he has never had an offensive presence, but had the capability of scoring goals on occasion. But now his defensive abilities are completely gone. Completely gone. You know, and last night we saw Drew O'Connor, Josh Archibald get moved up to that third line with Jeff Carter, McGinn, and Kappen and moved down. Clearly that didn't work out. Maybe it's just because, I don't know, Carter, McGinn, Kapanen, Bluger, all of them are terrible. They're flat out terrible. I'm not going to say anything about Drew O'Connor because he is young has constantly been bounced around between Wilkes-Barre and Pittsburgh, has had no opportunity to establish consistency. Josh Archibald isn't necessarily bad, per se, but he should 100% be on the fourth line. So the bottom six right now for the Penguins is atrocious. And that is a testament to Ron Hextall and his lack of execution and lack of willingness to surround the core with talent to compete for a Stanley Cup. The Penguins right now, I saw the numbers just before I came on the air here. The Penguins have a 40% chance, just a 40% chance to make the playoffs. That's it. It's down to 14% When it gets to making it to the second round. And anything beyond the second round, 
the Penguins don't have numbers for. And that is embarrassing. When they could have a much better team had they kept Jared McCann, who has 39 points for the Seattle Kraken. Yes, you heard that correctly. 26 goals, 13 assists for 39 points for Jared McCann, who is three years younger than Josh Archibald, along with, and when you compare him to Danton Heinen, he's got to be younger than Heinen as well. Heinen's 27, so he's a year younger than Danton Heinen and producing at a much better rate. Completely embarrassing mismanagement there for Ron Hextall. And I always said from day one that the Penguins shouldn't have let Tanev walk. They shouldn't have traded McCann to Toronto, who ultimately left him exposed as well. McCann and Tanev, one of them should have been protected over Jeff Carter. And there are no ands, ifs, or buts about it. When I get more information as far as what Ron Hextall has to say in his afternoon press conference, I'll be sure to pass that along as well. But in the meantime... You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Pirate Spring Training starts tomorrow, so as a result, we'll be discussing the opening game against the Toronto Blue Jays. Who's going to be getting the ball for the Pirates in that opening game? As well as some prospects to watch out for and potential extension talks progressing between the Pirates and Brian Reynolds right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
Here on the Three Rivers Talk Show, Pittsburgh Pirates opening up their spring training games tomorrow afternoon at Lee Calm Park when they host the Toronto Blue Jays in Grapefruit League action. Of course, spring training starting up their games, meaning that opening day is one step closer. And this is a big opportunity for the Pirates because of the moves they made in the offseason, taking those steps forward to show that they are trying to compete this year, trying to address all of 
or at the very least, the majority of the issues within the team as far as where they needed help. And all of that is going to be put together starting tomorrow afternoon, hosting the Blue Jays for Toronto. You say Kikuchi getting the ball, the Japanese left-hander. And as for the Pirates, it's going to be Mitch Keller getting the start for the for Pittsburgh down in Bradenton. Of course, all Pirates home spring training games are televised on AT&T Sportsnet. I'm not suggesting that you watch the games in class or watch the games while you're at work, but if it works for you, I'm not going to stop you. So just keep that in mind. Don't If you get caught by your boss or your professor, don't come back on me and say, well, this guy on the radio told you to because I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just throwing it out there that all the home games are on AT&T Sportsnet. Anyways, Mitch Keller getting the ball tomorrow. Big opportunity for Keller. Took steps forward last season from about the middle of May on and is now looking to build on those even more. When you look at Keller's numbers last year, of course, a 391 ERA in 159 innings pitched, had 138 strikeouts in those innings. And it really was Mitch Keller getting much better as the season progressed. If you look at the month of April, his ERA was well over six. Keller did not have an appearance in April that was longer than five and a third innings. And that was when the Pirates were in Milwaukee. He only gave up one earned run on a solo shot. But still, an ERA of 6.6, no bueno. You get to May. ERA started to come down a little bit. At the end of May, his ERA, 519. So, things were really still bad for Keller. Rather, that was his ERA at the end of the month. At the end of the month of May, yes. Or no, rather, I take that back. That was five nineteen. Was the month of his ERA in the month of May? Yes, because he made six appearances, four starts, two out of the bullpen. But it was those two bullpen appearances that really started to turn things around for Keller. You get to the month of June, he went back to the rotation. An ERA of 410 in the month of June. And then July got about as good as you'll ever see Mitch Keller. 261 ERA through five starts. August, a little bit of a hiccup. 470 ERA. September just flat out dominant, 180 ERA. So even going beyond what he did in the month of July, and then just the one appearance against St. Louis in the month of October. So you see right there Mitch Keller's numbers month by month last season. And so he's going to be looking to take things one step forward as far as being more consistent. Can you get rid of that hiccup in August? where your ERA in July was 270 and avoid that hiccup. 
Can you avoid the slow start like you did the first month in April and not have to have two appearances out of the bullpen? And then once you do get back into the rotation, can you be hot right from the get-go and not have that slow month of June where you're still really trying to sort things out? And again, this is where the leadership and the expertise of Rich Hill is going to come in for a young guy like Mitch Keller, who has a lot to prove this season. Someone who is going to go out there with a point, with a chip on his shoulder, a point to prove, and want to focus on solely baseball. Now, we probably won't see a lot of Mitch Keller tomorrow. It's the first game of spring training. Keller will probably get about two and a third innings, maybe. If he's really really doing well, Shelton might let him go the full three innings. But you will not see Mitch Keller for more than three innings. At most. Keller's going to probably have three innings. He'll probably be on a pitch limit of about 45-ish maybe, somewhere in there. Again, that would be about as high as it would be. He might even only be set to throw 35-40 pitches. So if you don't see Keller go beyond an inning and two-thirds, it's nothing to panic about. It's just the fact that it's day one of spring training games. So there's still plenty of time for his arm to get ready for the regular season and slowly push himself forward. Of course, we won't necessarily know the lineup until closer to first pitch. It's a 105 start, so you probably get the lineup about 10.30 tomorrow morning, if I had to guess. But it's an opportunity, again, for the Pirates. You're going to have young guys mixing in with the veterans. You'll have McCutcheon in a corner outfield next to somebody like Travis Swaggerty or somewhere along those lines. You're going to see that mix once again. You're going to see midway through the game. All of the starters are going to come out. They'll get their two or three at-bats and be done. And then the young guys are going to give it a go. That's what is going to happen throughout a lot of spring training. Now, the Pirates released news earlier today that Tamar Johnson was reassigned to minor league camp. Tamar Johnson, the Pirates first-round draft pick in 2022, was going to get an opportunity to taste spring training with the big boys, but he could not. Now, I don't want anybody to hear that news and panic, thinking Tamar Johnson's a bust. He's already been sent back from spring training and hasn't even played a game. No, Tamar Johnson is hurt and has, I don't want to say a significant injury, but he's going to be out for quite some time. So it's not fair to him, not fair to the Pirates to hold him in Major League camp. So it makes sense for both parties to just send him back to minor league camp. Because let's be honest here. Even if Termar Johnson did stay in big league camp, he was not going to see much game action at all. And within a week probably would have been sent back to minor league camp anyway. Because it's known he's going to be in the minor leagues. 
Derek Shelton has already said Andy Rodriguez is going to start in the minor leagues. And Andy Rodriguez, in my opinion, should be on the opening day roster. I know that the Pirates don't necessarily agree with that. They have Austin Hedges that they signed to be the team's starting catcher. They've got Tyler Heineman as an opportunity for backup. On February 12th, they signed Kevin Ploiecki to a minor league contract, gave him a spring training invite. So Ploiecki and Heineman are going to compete for that backup job. But there's opportunities for Andy Rodriguez to be on the Pirates' radar and get that early season call-up. Andy Rodriguez is one of the guys who I'm very excited to watch in spring training, seeing what he can do at the plate, seeing what he can do behind the plate. Because in order for him to be as successful as possible with the Pirates, he's got to be able to, to do things on both sides of the game. You can't just be focused on your offensive production. You can't just be focused on your defensive work as well. You have to do it both ways. And so Andy Rodriguez needs to show that he can simply do it both ways. So that's a guy I'm really excited for in spring training. I'm really excited to see what the Pirates are going to get out of Nick Gonzalez. Whether or not they're going to move him around as far as multiple positions trying to improve his versatility. Primarily a second baseman capable of playing shortstop. Was taking ground balls at third base earlier this morning. You might even see a little bit of Nick Gonzalez in the outfield. Simply because the Pirates want to test his versatility. And in a way, it makes sense given the fact that the Pirates do have some talented middle infielders right now. O'Neill Cruz is not going to lose his place at shortstop anytime soon. And if he does, the next guy up is Leo Verpiguero. Rodolfo Castro is going to hold down second base for quite some time, especially given the fact that he played very well down the stretch of the regular season last year. Yes, he had some issues as far as discipline, off-field things of that nature, the cell phone incident. Again, I'm not too concerned about that. He's going to come back ready to go. To Capito Marcano can play second as someone who's, at the very least, going to be right there in AAA. So the Pirates have options. And even Ji-Huan Bay, primarily an outfielder, but is capable of slotting in at middle infield. So for Pittsburgh, they have that depth. So there isn't going to be a need to rush up Nick Gonzalez right away. And that's also why his versatility is going to be important because if he's only a second baseman, the odds of him getting to Pittsburgh as soon as possible are slim because at that point you're banking on an injury for Rodolfo Castro and possibly one or two utility men, whether it be G. Juan Bay or someone else. Whereas if he's much more versatile, then it doesn't take as many injuries or even any injuries per se to call him up. They could just option somebody to trip away and make the move to go out and bring him up to Pittsburgh and see what the kid has to offer. So you have Gonzalez, what he's going to be able to do. What is Andy Rodriguez going to be able to do? Henry Davis, another big name 
Pirates number one overall pick in 2021 has had some injury concerns over the past two seasons. But again, an opportunity for him this spring to really go out there and show what he can do. You're going to have guys like Mike Burrows, Quinn Priester, big name prospect pitchers that the Pirates envision being in their rotation at some point in the near future. Burrows more recently, or much sooner than Quinn Priester, because Burroughs is already headlining the AAA rotation. Quinn Priester, he might be in AAA if he has a good spring training. But I also would not be surprised to see Priester start the season in AA Altoona and then work his way up to AAA within about a month, a month and a half maybe. Two months at the absolute most. So again, you've got those two pitchers, the two catchers, And then as far as guys besides them, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the offseason acquisitions. I know they're not necessarily prospects, but G-Man Choi, Harlan Garcia, Rich Hill, Jose Fernandez is a prospect, the Rule 5 pick that the Pirates grabbed from the Los Angeles Dodgers, who will more than likely be in the Pirates' bullpen to start the season. Luis Ortiz, Johan Oviedo, how are they going to perform in spring training? Colin Selby, a relief pitching prospect for the Pirates, currently making his way up to Tripway, Indianapolis. Again, Selby, a hard-throwing right-hander. Pirates have him on the 40. Could he sneak into a bullpen spot if things go well? And then, of course, you've got prospects that are going to be in minor league camp. Leover Peguero, always a big name to watch out for. Malcolm Nunez, not exactly sure if he got the call to spring training. I'm going to try and find the complete list here to see if he did. Whether he did or not, he's going to be a big name this season as well because of the potential that he has in the bat. I think the Pirates, they might not have they might not have prospects that are going to be wowers who are future stars. But they've got guys that are going to be capable of producing and capable of getting the job done. They might not be all-star level like O'Neill Cruz, but nobody is going to be like O'Neill Cruz. That is very rare. And, of course, the invite list not necessarily showing up right now, but if Tamar Johnson was available in spring training, he would have been somebody to watch out for in the event of that. As a matter of fact, speak of the devil, I found the list. Cody Bolton, going to be a name to watch out for. Malcolm Nunez did get the invite to spring training. Carmen Mlodzinski, Jared Jones, 
even Matt Gorski. I'd like to see what he can offer for the Pirates. There's plenty of names to look for. Now, the biggest news surrounding spring training is whether or not Brian Reynolds will get the extension done before the regular season starts. Apparently, talks are still ongoing. Bob Nutting is down in Bradenton right now looking to see what's really just the beginning of season overlook. But saying that the Pirates are trying to decrease the size of the bridge between the organization and Brian Reynolds, which is great. That's something that shouldn't have taken this long to get to, but better late than never. So now rumors are flying around that the latest proposal or what would be an offer that Reynolds would consider would be six years, $100 million. Which, if you do the math, averages out to about $16.67 million per season. Which is right around the ballpark that I've been saying all along. You get Reynolds, $16-$17 million a year, and that's what he's going to be looking for. That's the number that he should be looking for. That's the number the Pirates should be looking to sign him for. If Reynolds wanted 20 plus million, then no, you don't give it to him. If the Pirates were only trying to offer Reynolds 12 and a half million a year, then that's way too low. But that 16, 17 million dollar ballpark is exactly where you want the organization to be. That's exactly where you want Brian Reynolds to be being paid. And if that deal goes through and Reynolds gets his six years, 100 million, Especially given the fact that he's set to make six and a or right around six and a half million, might even be pushing six point seven five million this year. Get it done now. Buy out those years of arbitration. Nobody wants to go to arbitration and deal with that. You have Reynolds now on between six and a half, six and three quarters million dollars. Sign him to that six million or six year extension for right around a hundred million dollars. Have it go into effect after this season. And then at that point you're keeping Brian Reynolds until he is thirty-four years old. About to turn thirty-five. And then at that point you can reevaluate things, see what his production is, where the numbers are. And go from there whether or not you extend him or let him walk. But if, like I said it before, and I'll say it again. Getting that extension done for Brian Reynolds would cap off a phenomenal offseason for the Pirates. And while it's technically not the offseason anymore, if it gets done by opening day, you're going to have a lot of happy yinzers cheering on the box especially given the fact that the Penguins are struggling as mightily as they are. The Steelers aren't in action right now. Pirates might have a little bit of competition with Pitt basketball, which 
actually leads right into the preview for the next segment as we're going to be looking at Pitt basketball. That loss to Virginia Tech really hurting the Panthers. I will bring you Joe Lenardi's latest bracketology and brace yourself, it's not pretty. But also the fact that the remaining games for the Panthers are going to be huge. We'll break them down along with more right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Instead of making love, we both made a silver And now I'm 
and we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show looking at pit basketball as when I talked about the Panthers last Friday, I said this facetiously, but now that it actually happened, it's the truth. Pitt wins a game, they get hit hard in the rankings. They lose a game, they get hit harder by the rankings. And that's exactly what happened. When the Panthers lost last Saturday to Georgia Tech, or Virginia Tech rather, they beat Virginia Tech. Lost to Virginia Tech by seven. And don't you know, the Panthers slide down the rankings. The latest update from Joe Lenardi. Now, again, just a reminder, before the break, I did tell you to brace yourself because this ranking is atrocious. It's absolutely atrocious. Not only did the Panthers drop their seating, they are currently now a 10 seed in the Eastern Division of the bracket, if you will. They are now one of the last four teams to receive a bye. Meaning that, yes, they are one of the last four teams that would not be in one of those 11 seed play-in games. I'm sorry, what? What? Pitt, a team that for all intents and purposes is at the top of the ACC, has had their first 20-win season in at least six years, is now one of the last four teams to get a bye? That is absolutely absurd. 100%. This is a Panthers team who is, again, still not ranked. A record of 20 and 8 overall, 13 and 4 in the ACC. Just half a game behind number 13, Miami. And that's only because the Hurricanes have played one more game than Pitt. I mean, when Pitt and Virginia played that last, or that game in hand, if you will, there's the potential to have a three-way tie atop the ACC. Of course, Pitt would have the tiebreaker over UVA because the Panthers beat the Cavaliers. So that game is going to turn out to be huge. And for Pitt... That game against Miami is also going to have those same implications because of the head-to-head being that first tiebreaker. That game a week from tomorrow will 100% be the biggest game of the season for the Panthers. It's their last one, but it's their biggest one. They have 
just three games left. You've got Syracuse tomorrow night. That game being played at home. You've got Notre Dame on the road, which should be a pretty comfortable win. And then you've got Miami Saturday. That's it. Three games left in the regular season. But again, you look back at these standings. A team that is just a half a game back with a game in hand on the number 13 team in the country. A team that has the same conference record as the number six team in the country. And yet Pitt is considered a last four by team while Miami and UVA are fairly high seats. Miami right now getting the AQ nomination for the ACC because they're leading. The Hurricanes are a four seed in the South. You look at Virginia, UVA, they're a four seed in the East. So Two teams right up there atop the ACC with Pitt are four seeds, and yet Pitt is a 10. Then you've got, of course, Clemson right now is considered one of the next four out, so they're nowhere near the tournament, which is in a way a bit ridiculous because they are 12 and 5. Let's look through this BS for from Joe Lenardi. Let's see if there are any other ACC teams in here. Aha. NC State is an eight seed in the Midwest region. Who they are they are 12 and 6 in the ACC. Clemson is 12 and 5. So they are worse than Clemson. And they are an eight seed while Clemson is next four out. Duke is a seven seed in the Midwest. And Duke right now is 11-6. and six. Duke would have to win out. Pitt would have to lose out for those two teams, for the Blue Devils, to be better than the Panthers in the ACC. But yet Duke is a seven seed? This is what is wrong with college basketball. So many of these seedings... Now, I realize that Joe Lenardi's bracket is arguably the most realistic. So if March Madness were to start today, realistically, that would be where the Panthers would fall at, a 10 seat. But it's absurd. It's genuinely absurd to think about the fact that that is where people see Pitt. And how things are going to go with them in March Madness. There's really no better route one way or another for the Panthers. Although I will say that right where they are as a 7 seed or a 10 seed in that 7-10 matchup might be the best way for them to move forward. Arguably, I'd like to see Pitt on the other side as the seven seed. Because if you look 
right now in all of the 7-10 matchups, you've got Providence-Memphis, Michigan State, and Pitt, which that would be a big game simply because Pitt and Michigan State have played each other a lot recently. Duke and Missouri, and then Maryland and Auburn. The winner of those 7-10 matchups have four options that they are likely to play. Now, when I say this, I'm going to make the assumption that all four two-seeds advance beyond the first round. If they don't, hell is broken loose in March Madness. Those two-seeds right now being UCLA, Texas, Kansas State, and Arizona. All of them are nationally ranked. UCLA is four. Arizona is seven. Kansas State is 14th. And then Texas is eighth. So realistically, as much as it might be frustrating for Pitt to be that 10 seed, if they can stay in that 7-10 matchup, they're in the East. Kansas State would arguably be their best bet of the two seeds to face. And I know Kansas State is a phenomenal basketball team, but they are without a doubt then the rankings don't lie. They are the worst of the two seats. Now, if you want to start talking about Pitt either rising or falling and slotting into that 6-11 matchup, then things start to get a little bit more complex. You look at, you know, who Lenardi has listed as the three seats and whether or not they are viable options. You look at his list of three seats, you've got Baylor, who's ranked ninth, Tennessee, who's ranked 10, Marquette 11, and Gonzaga 12. Rather, those are his rankings as far as the three seats in order. Baylor, and also the fact that that is the top 25 list as well. So arguably Pitt has a more favorable matchup if they stay in that seven to 10 slot and take on Kansas state in the second round. Of course, Pitt would have to take care of business and get past Michigan state as well. But this whole bracket, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, but I'm going to touch on it again. This whole bracket, or the majority of it, is seeded based upon teams in the past, what their history is like, and who the big-name schools are. You cannot tell me that this bracket is only taking into, effect, into account this season and this season alone. If that were the case, Clemson would not be next four out. Pitt would not be a last four bye. Duke would not be a six seed. I mean, the fact that Pitt is half a game back of Miami for the ACC lead and the Hurricanes are a four, the Panthers are a 10 seed, they're playing the same teams in the ACC. Yes, Pitt 
shot themselves in the foot against Virginia Tech. I get that. Yes, Pitt shot themselves in the foot when they lost their early games in the regular season against Michigan when they dropped that game by 30 points, when they lost to WVU by 25. But this is an entirely different Pitt team than what they were at that point. And so you're going to you're going to punish Pitt and have them be a last four bye. Also with West Virginia as a last four bye who is in a tougher conference, yes, but they are also having a much worse record than Pitt. Their out of conference record wasn't as good either. So you're going to hurt Pitt, but then you're going to raise up Duke, NC State who have worse records in the ACC than Pitt. For what? Because Duke and NC State have generally been towards the top of the ACC for the past several years because of the fact of who Duke is and how good they've been for the past 30-something years under Coach K. I mean, you're ranking teams at this point based on their history and what the projected rankings were supposed to be at the beginning of the season. Pitt was going to be a bottom four team, projected to be a bottom four team in the ACC when this year started. Nobody expected them to be where they are now. And I would understand, and I've said this before, I would understand having some hesitancy at first to slot them into the top 25, some hesitancy to seed them higher in the recent bracket. But they've proven that they're going to go out there and compete every night. They've proven that, yes, they may have that off game like they did against Virginia Tech this past week, but they are capable of playing some best of their best basketball in the highest moments. Nobody thought they were going to go in and knock off UVA. Nobody thought they were going to sweep UNC. Nobody expected them to beat Clemson. Nobody thought they were going to beat Syracuse, who they have a rematch with tomorrow. And yet the Panthers won every single one of those games. But yet you're going to sit there and tell me that Pitt is a 10 seed. That is bogus. It's completely ridiculous. And again, I don't know what Pitt has to do to get higher in Lenardi's bracket. I don't know what they have to do to crack the top 25 if they're even going to at this point. If they are going to ever get higher in Lenardi's bracket. Hell, Pitt could go out, win the ACC regular season title outright, be crowned ACC champions in the postseason, and Lenardi still might have them as a nine seed. At this rate, who knows? Because everybody seems to not be wanting to take that risk and put Pitt higher up in the bracket where they should be. And again, if people want to keep sleeping on Pitt, go for it. Knock your socks off. But this Pitt team is going to make a statement one way or another. And, you know, everyone is so quick to point out the NET rankings, quad one, quad two records, whatever it may be. But if you look right now, UNC is eight spots higher in the NET rankings than Pitt. 
Pitt 13 and 4 in the ACC, UNC 9 and 8. Against quad one teams, Pitt is 5 and 3. UNC against quad one teams, 0 and 9. What justification does UNC have being higher than Pitt in those NET rankings? Both teams are considered on the bubble. How is UNC considered even on the bubble when they are 0-9 against quad one teams in college basketball? If the roles were reversed and it was Pitt who was 0-9 against quad one teams, 9-8 in the ACC, people are sending them to the NIT already. But again, it's because of UNC's history, what they've done in the past, the name that they've created for themselves. And again, all of these rankings, all of these brackets are based on the past and not the present. They have to start changing the dynamic of these rankings, of the brackets, and tailor them to be closer to reality. Don't look at past seasons. Don't look at projected rankings at the start of the season. Look at what is in front of you. Look at how each team is playing this year and this year only and make your brackets and rankings based on that. If it gets to the point where things are tailored to that and there's still some discrepancy, I'll go from there. But for right now, that has to be the fix because at this point, it's just flat out embarrassing for Pitt. It's flat out embarrassing for Clemson to be considered a next four out when you've got teams like NC State and Duke who are below them in the ACC standings, but yet are six and eight seeds in Lenardi's bracket. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Football talk coming up next as NFL draft rumors starting to pick up, as well as teams that might possibly trade up for the number one pick right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Jesse is a friend. Thank you. 
back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show looking at the latest surrounding the NFL, rumors and everything of that such. Joined once again by Dylan Bazika. Dylan, welcome back. It's been a while since you've been on the air here with me. Yeah, man. It's been about two weeks since I've been on air. Took a little break for a little bit, trying to get some schoolwork going, but glad to be back, man. Absolutely. And just in time for all of the draft analysis to start up. And the rumors already getting quite chaotic and that is putting it nicely as there's already speculation that the Dallas Cowboys are quote-unquote interested in CJ Stroud and I mean when we've talked already off the air you've said there's no way Dallas jumps up and takes Stroud but I mean really is there Anything that Stroud would give Dallas that they don't already have in Prescott? I mean, I think personally, I'm not a huge fan of Dak Prescott, so, and plus like with his contract and everything, but I think C.J. Stroud, he is, the, I believe he is the second best QB in this draft class, obviously behind Bryce Young, who I think is going to go number one overall, but that, we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, I think Stroud's a real good QB. The only downfall I have on Stroud, he's an Ohio State quarterback. And in recent memory, Ohio State keeps the NFL – have not had much success in the pros. So, but like in order for Dallas to do this, they would have to, first of all, trade Dak to probably get like a first or first, probably two first, trade up from 26. You probably have to make three separate trades to even get close of getting CJ Stroud. Absolutely. Or if they do trade Dak, let's just say hypothetically here, what if they trade Dak? to a team that is considering drafting someone early, like Carolina. Colts? The Colts. Carolina or the Colts. Yeah, or even the Raiders. I mean, yeah, I know the there's, looking at a there's speculation that Rodgers might go to the Raiders, but they could trade him to one of those teams, that him being Prescott, and then you're right there in the top ten, and then you would only need to swap picks, maybe give up a second and possibly a third to jump into that top three, top two, and then you could very well end up with C.J. Stroud. Yeah, I mean, if we're thinking like that, I mean, I think the Colts would be best bet for him because out of conference, normally when franchises trade star franchise QBs, they normally tend to want to trade them out of conference so they don't have to mm-hmm. play them as much. Yeah. And so I think the Colts would be um, intriguing, really, because the Colts of the last couple of years have gone like the veteran QB route. Yeah. Phillip Rivers, Carson Wentz, Ja'Kay Brissett, you know, so on and so on, Matt Ryan. And if they want to continue in that trend, they could part ways with number four and get Dak and probably 26 in return. Yeah. So, I mean, and if they would do that, I mean, the Colts would get better. I think they would. And then mm-hmm. Dallas obviously would have to make probably get that two spot from Houston or maybe even hop Houston to go one to get their pick of whoever they want. Exactly, especially when, I mean, there's still speculation that the Bears might try and trade Justin Fields. Now, I mean, I don't necessarily see that being the case. Mm-mm. Just like I don't see C.J. Stroud going to Dallas, but, I mean, it's out there. we got to talk it's, about it's dra- it. It's draft season. There's so many smoke screens going on right now, and no one knows what any team is doing at the mm-hmm. moment. It's just, personally, if I'm Dallas, yeah, you might like C.J. Stroud. You might be fond of what he brings to the table. But unless you're going to go in essentially rebuild mode, 
it wouldn't make sense to bring him in and move on from Dak. Yeah, because, I mean, they're going to probably finish number two next season in the NFC East. Yeah. Behind Philly, obviously. But the NFC East, a couple years ago, we've been calling the NFC least because it was so terrible. Now, almost all four of those teams went to the playoffs last year. Mm -hmm. So, that division is going to be tough for the next couple of years. So, do you really want to go in the full rebuild mode? Because Eagles are going to be reloading. Giants are going to get better. Now, they might lose Saquon, possibly, because they can't yeah. choose between you want to pay Daniel Jones or you want to pay Saquon. Mm-hmm. What position do they value most, QB or the running back position? Obviously, yeah. we, know, we both know the answer to that, quarterback. You mm-hmm. need to have good QB play in the NFL. Yes. But if they don't re-sign Sa- Saquon, and they could possibly regress a little bit. But they have the 25th pick in the draft. They can go get Bajan Robinson mm-hmm. if Saquon does decide to leave the Big Apple. But in Washington too, they're gonna they're committed on Sam Howell as their QB, and they got Eric Benemy. They got a good couple free agents in house. Free agents they got to resign like Deron Payne mm-hmm. and a couple others. But they are probably gonna get better. They have a good amount of cap space. Same with the Giants. Philly's got they got to make some moves. They got a lot of pieces leaving that Super Bowl team. But yeah, if you mean they go all in, they're gonna be the last team in that division. And I don't think Jerry Jones wants to be last in that division absolutely not so in a way it, it just doesn't make sense and i think obviously cj stroud in my opinion out of the quarterbacks that have recently came out of ohio state cj stroud is by far the best of the bunch oh yeah 100 by far 100%. but there like you said there's still that uncertainty about him being an ohio state quarterback and whether or not he is going to be successful and so there's still a lot of debate about you know who truly is qb1 in this draft class you have your thoughts on it being bryce young as far as quarterback goes and talent i would have to agree with that but what do you think you know scouts and gms are gonna think about the fact that i mean let's be real bryce young is only listed at 510 are he, they gonna he's see him 11 he's 511 six what, foot are they still gonna see that as being too small for a quarterback see, whenever you've got offensive linemen who are six 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 seven yeah. see i don't like the whole idea with that like oh the QB needs to be above six foot and all this no they don't drew Brees was short he was under six foot kyler murray's five nine russell wilson's five ten maybe five eleven Kyler Murray looks like a toddler yeah, running whenever like, yeah, he's he still like a something. middle schooler out there. But look at him. He can see perfectly fine. He Baker can see Mayfield, Call of Duty perfectly fine. Yeah, he can do that. <laughs> With Baker Mayfield, I don't think he, what is he, 5'11", 6 foot maybe? Somewhere around there. But there's a history of small QBs being able to play at a elite level. So, like, the whole height thing, this ain't back in the day where, like, GMs would normally want their QBs, like, 6'3 or 4 taller. Because I know the Broncos, that's been their huge philosophy. Like, they want their QBs tall. But, you know, it's another story. But I don't think size has nothing to do with it. Like, size does not matter in the NFL. At some points, yeah, that can help. But, like, the worth ethic and everything, just the pure skill of that player, mm-hmm. height don't matter. Yeah. So, like, Bryce Young's, like, talent-wise, oh my, talent wise, he was the, he's arguably the best QB to come out of Alabama ever. That's my pick. I think he's the best ever. Better than Tua, Mac Jones, all of them thousand times better i mean at this point mac jones is fighting to keep his starting spot See, ahead of bailey zappy i don't get something I, mean, I don't like the whole mac jones 
like slander and stuff from people are giving him. I mean, New England, what what weapons does he have, honestly? What weapons does he have? I mean, do you count Nelson Aguilar? Nelson Aguilar, like <laughs> Nelson Aguilar Kendrick Bourne, Devontae Parker, Hunter Henry, Johnny Smith. They're getting rid of Johnny Smith. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, what weapons does he have? Does he have a clear-cut number one guy? No, there's no clear-cut number one receiver on that Patriots squad. And you look at, like, some of the other teams, like, the same draft class. So, Zach Wilson, okay, in the same draft class. He has offensive rookie of the year, Garrett Wilson. He has Brees Hall. He has C.J. Uzama, Elijah Moore, C.J. Uh, C.J. Sims. Can't think of the Baylor receiver they have. Mm-hmm. Him. And then Trey Lance in San Francisco, he's got – Second best tight end, George Kittle, Debo, Brandon Ayuk, McCaffrey. Mm-hmm. And then Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence even got better weapons than Mac Jones. $18 million a season, Christian Kirk. Yeah, Christian Kirk, <laughs> Zay Jones. You got, um, not with this question, no, they got rid of him. Jamal Agnew. Mm-hmm. And then ETN and Evan Ingram. I, yeah. All those weapons I just named for all the other QBs in 2019 class. Or 2020 class, excuse me. It's far better than Mac Jones' weapons have ever been. You give him someone, like, they're rumored to try and go get DeAndre Hopkins. You give him DeAndre Hopkins. You give him a new draft, another first-round receiver, maybe like Jordan Addison or Zay Flowers or someone like that. You give him those weapons, <laughs> Patriots team could be scary. He just don't got the weapons. I mean, yes, he struggled to play this year. He's been hurt, banged up a little bit. And yes, has he regressed a little bit since his rookie season? Yeah, of course. But I think it's because of the weapons. I don't think it's him. I think it's because of the weapons. And then plus some of the off-the-field stuff with, like, Matt Patricia and stuff calling plays, how him and Matt Patricia didn't were on the same page at all all the season. So I just think it's because of that. I mean, Mac Jones, I think, in my opinion, is a franchise quarterback. I'd love to have it on my team. I mean, I'm not saying I disagree with you oh, there, yeah. but whenever – you see Bailey Zappi go in and he performs at a much mm-hmm. higher rate, then it starts to raise some questions. It does. I mean, they spent the 15th pick in 2020 on Mac Jones. He was mm-hmm. arguably supposed to go, like, during that draft class, and he was supposed to go to the 49ers. He was rooming the all draft season. Yeah. He was go- a day of the draft. He don't go to the J- Niners. They go throw a curveball and get Lance. And he falls into Bill Belichick's lap, which everyone was like, wow. He got Tom Brady, like Tom Brady 2.0 mini mm-hmm. version of him. And, I mean, Zappy, what, you got him in the third, fourth round, I believe? Uh, somewhere around there, yeah, middle of the draft. I mean, he's a good backup. I mean, yeah, he flashed a little bit, but he didn't, like, yeah, he, I think he won him a couple games, but I just think Mac Jones is better, just in my opinion. I mean, why would you waste a 15th overall pick on a franchise guy just to go get rid of him? Exactly. Like the Jets, for instance, like they spent the second overall pick on Zach Wilson and they're already thinking about sending him out of town. I mean, Zach Wilson, even though Mac Jones has struggled at times in New England, he is still worlds better than what Zach Wilson has done with the Jets. Even this, I know, you know, the same argument could be made with Zach Wilson and the Jets of him not having that crew around him, not having a top receiver. But you can't have that make that excuse for him this past season because no, he had talent yeah. and he just couldn't perform. And when it gets to the point where you are being benched for 36-year-old Joe Flacco and Mike White, and Mike White there's a problem. Yeah, I mean, that whole entire 
when they drafted him at two, I thought for sure they were going to go draft Justin Fields or like Mac Jones. Yeah. Like when Wilson came off the board, I was shocked because I didn't think he was going to go. I thought he was going to fall like the Patriots at like 15. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he was going to go top three at all. And I remember when that draft happened, I thought then that the Jets gave up on Darnold prematurely. Oh, they did. They did. And because they saw Zach Wilson. And like we always say, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Mm-hmm. And the Jets, for lack of better words, effed around and found out. Yeah, they did. They did. And the now the reason why like, he went that high because of his um, his uh, pro day. Yeah. Wow, he threw a ball running in, like on one foot. He threw it like 65 yards. Wow, good job. Wow. Mm-hmm. Any QB in this upcoming any draft class can throw a ball that far. Yeah. It's pretty close. So like you're doing that on air. Do that in a game. Let me see you do that, like, against an opponent's defense. Then that, I'll, I'll be impressed. Do that in a game when T.J. Watt's chasing you from behind. I don't know. I mean, college. I mean, let's not get that. T.J. Watt's a different animal. I mean, like, you were talking about in-game, so oh, I, yeah. just, I just threw out the first outside I mean, linebacker yeah, yeah, that came I mean, to mind. Like at BYU, he didn't do much of that stuff at all at BYU. No, absolutely not. And speaking of this draft class, you talked about something just a few minutes before we went on air here. CBS Sports listing Anthony Richardson as QB1, going first overall to whichever team trades up and takes him. And you seem to be a little bit annoyed by that. I mean, I like Anthony Richardson as a prospect. I do. He's a, a more. He's the biggest boom or bust prospect we've seen in the last, I want to say, 10 years because he's that good. He's good. He has all the potential in the world to be one of the best QBs ever to come out of the draft. But you cannot – whatever team does trying to get him, you cannot play him this entire first year. You better put him on the bench so he can learn. If you throw him into the fire, huh, well, guess what? You just wasted that pick and the rest of your future, you trade up for him. And, I mean, I would say – I mean, I even see some people saying he's not even the top ten QBs in this draft. Which is mm-hmm. absurd, in my opinion. But, like, the top five QBs, in order, I think personally, it should be Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Hendon Hooker, even though he's hurt. Hendon Hooker. Hendon Hooker, even though he is hurt. Him, I don't even, I'm not a huge fan of Levis. I'll put Levis and then Richardson. I think those are, like, the best five. You can maybe make an argument for Tanner McKee out of Stanford, possibly. Hendon Hooker, wow. I mean, he's projected to be a fourth-rounder. He was projected to be a day-two pick, but if he'd never shattered his ACL, he probably would have went in the first round, I guarantee it. Wow. And, and he was playing on high. Mm-hmm. He's the favorite to win the Heisman. He brought Tennessee, which was down in the shambles from, like, the glory mm-hmm. days back in the 90s where they were, like, one of the top dogs. Yeah. They've been an irrelevant college franchise. And the last couple of years, Hendon Hooker, this season alone, put Tennessee back on the map. Mm-hmm. They have a top five recruiting class probably because of Hendon Hooker and the performance they did. I mean, heck, they upset Alabama. Mm-hmm. They didn't be, haven't beat Bama in nine years. Yeah. I mean, Anthony Richardson was the subject of some discussion on NFL Network recently. And Daniel Jeremiah came out and said that several teams – 
have came out and graded Anthony Richardson as their second best quarterback in the draft. I mean, if you're just going off talent wise, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Talent wise, he's insane. He can throw the ball, flail over sixty five yards. He's fast as heck coming out the pocket. Great pocket awareness and everything. Mm-hmm. Just some of his decision he makes sometimes during games are questionable. Yeah, but I mean, you can say about any QB, honestly. Mm-hmm. But talent wise. He is the second best. I agree with Daniel Jeremiah 100%. He's the second best talented-wise QB in, in this draft behind Bryce Young. And then that, for me, raises this dilemma. Because, you know, so much of the NFL, simply because, you know, they get drafted in April and they're thrown into training camp and preseason games just a few months later. And a first-round draft pick in the NFL is a guy who's, supposed to make a big impact right away. Yeah, it's supposed and, to be the franchise guy. We're off the yeah. rip. And like you said, you know, it's best for Anthony Richardson to be sitting on the bench for a year and then step into that role in year two. Yes. How, how as a GM, are you going to justify using a top 10 draft pick on a quarterback that you're going to have sit for a year? I mean, teams that are rebuilding, like, we'll name a couple, like Chicago, if they would trade them, they're in full rebuild mode. Houston, if they would take them, full rebuild mode. Carolina, they could make I mean, that division right now is up for grabs. But I personally believe Carolina would be the best fit for him because they have Darnold still. Unless Darnold gets hurt, he would have to play. But besides that... He would sit the bench. He would learn from Donald. Frank Reich, who I believe is a very good head coach in the NFL, learn behind him, learn the offense. I mean, they have some nice weapons there. DJ Moore, LaVisca Chenault, Terrence Marshall Jr., and then they got Dante Foreman and Chuba Hubbard in the backfield. So that personally, to me, if he could put into that system on Frank Reich in like year two, oh, that Panthers team could look nice. I mean, I could, I could see it. It's just... I mean, like you said, unless it's a team that is truly committed to a rebuild, then it doesn't make sense. But then oftentimes you see those teams that are truly committed to a rebuild and they draft their quarterback in the top 10. They throw him to the Wolves right away. I mean, that's what the Jets did with Zach Wilson. Jets did with Sam Darnold and Zach Wilson. Yep, Sam Darnold as well. I mean, the the Bears didn't necessarily do it right away with Justin Fields mm-hmm. because at the time they had Mike Glennon still yeah. bouncing around. But, I mean, Fields, I would still argue, was thrown into that fire a bit too soon. Like midseason normally, it's like the thing with Kenny Pickett. I thought mm-hmm. he should have sat the entire year. Come midseason, the Seals weren't doing good, so they th- just throw him in there to provide a spark late mid late in the mm-hmm. season. And look what he did. He thrived. And early on he struggled yes. mightily. Yes. And later on, he's gotten better and better. But, yeah, I mean, they could do the same with that. Like, that was the same with Justin Fields. First-round pick game manager Kenny Pickett. I mean, that's essentially what he was down the stretch. Game manager. Yeah. That's all they asked him to do. They didn't ask him to go, hey, need you to go win us this game. I need you to go crazy for us. No. It was like, do what we tell you to do. Hit the open spots. Give it the defense we'll give you. And, yeah, come the check down master. Yeah. And so, I mean – there's just so many teams that could go so many different directions with that number one overall pick. I mean, I could even see. Sorry, interrupting could, you, yeah. but I could see. Now I'm thinking about. I can see the Raiders getting Richardson. The Raiders, seven. if they don't go all in for Rodgers, but I believe they will. Mm-hmm. I mean, go reunite Devontae Adams and and Aaron Rodgers. You have the best wide receiver QB tandem. Yeah, 
But if they don't, say they don't go all in for Rodgers, I can see them getting Anthony Richardson. I mean, you got a division with Justin Herbert, Pat mm-hmm. Mahomes, just won his second Super Bowl, Broncos country, Russell Wilson. And then he's your QB, Jared Stidham. Really? Do you want Jared Stidham in? I mean, I'm not saying I like Jared Stidham. I was just more surprised about Richardson because every mock draft you see has the Raiders taking Will Levis. Damn, my he's fan of Levis. All the ones I see, like it's either it's Bryce Young one, two is Stroud, four, um, seven is Levis, and mm-hmm. nine is Richardson. Yeah. And the Raiders are the seventh pick. Yeah. I mean, could they potentially say if Will Levis and Richardson are on the board, they can get it just for based off talent mm-hmm. more? Oh yeah, I mean, I could absolutely. I can see is Josh Mc or not? Josh, yeah, Josh McDaniels. You can mm-hmm. see him. He's a he could throw a curveball at everyone. And be like, this yeah. is the guy I want. Cause, I mean, he is an off. He is a good offensive genius. Yeah, to an extent. And I could very easily, you know, see the Raiders. You know, say they don't get Rodgers. I could, like you said, now that I think about it, see them taking Richardson at seven and forcing the Panthers to take Will Levis at nine. Mm-hmm. If that's something that. Frank Reich and the Panthers organization wants to do and go out there and get Will Levis, or at that point they might say we, we're not interested, and then they find an alternative option. But there's just there's so many different routes. So many teams could trade up for number one. It could be Houston. It could be Indianapolis. I mean, anything could go. Yeah, any team in the top ten could trade up if they want. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even the like there I've seen stuff about Detroit being like a dark horse to trade up and get a QB, but I'm like. Detroit don't need a QB. Yeah, Detroit has settled in with Goff at this yeah, point. I, I think Goff had his, one of his best seasons this past year. Mm-hmm. Went to the Pro Bowl. They have four picks in the top 55, I believe. Yeah. And what they Detroit really needs to make this team a playoff team? Defense. Yes. Defense, defense, defense. Offensively, they got a great young team. They got Amon Ross St. Brown, DJ Chart. They're going to need a new tight end. you got Jamal mm-hmm. Williams, the rushing touchdown king this year, and then Goff and DeAndre Swift. And it's a nice young core of pieces for offense. Absolutely. Defensively, I mean, you got um, rookie of the year overall, Aiden Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. He had a phenomenal season. You have Jeff Akuda, who's coming back. And you got a nice young D-line. you got some good linebackers. All they really need – some more they need linebacker depth and they need secondary help badly. So like I got six, take a corner, either Christian Gonzalez or Devin Witherspoon. Absolutely. And I mean, like we've said already, you know, there's so many teams that need a quarterback, particularly the NFC South. But yeah. there was just yesterday a story released on ESPN that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers general manager Jason Licht coming out and saying that, yes, the NFC South quarterback situation right now is very poor. But coming out and saying that he believes Kyle Trask Mm -hmm. is not only going to be their week one starter, but also the best quarterback in that division. I mean, what do you think about that? Best QB in that division? Yes. I don't know about that. We really haven't seen Kyle Trask play that much. I mean, I know they spent a second-round pick on him. I mean, he got to learn behind Tom Brady for two years. So maybe that, that is true. something. But, I mean, in that division right now, so let's see. Here's the list of quarterbacks in that division currently under contract. Carolina has Matt Corral and Jacob Eason. The Falcons have Desmond Ritter, Marcus Mariota, Logan Woodside, and the Saints, Jameis Winston, 
Jacob Luton, and technically listed as a tight end, but also can throw Taysom Hill. Those are the guys that can play quarterback right now in the NFC South. And then Kyle Trask is the only Buccaneers quarterback under contract. My goodness. I mean... You want to talk about a crapshoot of names. That's it right there. That's bad. (laughs) I mean, you think think about it. Okay. For Falcons, I think they will stick with Ritter. Yes. Just just to do it. Mariota, I think, is gone. After some of the comments, he said he's gone. Jameis Winston, I think he's gone as well. Yes. The Saints hit the restart button. Because there's $75 million over the cap. So I think they're going to let, let go of some people. Panthers probably are going to bring back Darnold for insurance policy. Mm-hmm. They're going to draft the QB at nine. Saints, I don't know what they're going to do. They could. I think they're going to draft Tanner McKee or Hennon Hooker in the draft, second or third round. I could see it. Or they can go, excuse me, they might go free agent route. Derek, Derek Carr and Jimmy G are both free agents. Yes. So I can see the Saints or who did I say the Saints and who else? The Saints and the Panthers. Oh yeah, Saints and Panthers. They could go for a veteran QB possibly. They could. I know Saints I think the Saints will get Derek Carr. Absolutely. So the Saints would have to so updated if this would happen or what if scenario. Derek Carr to the Saints, Ritter with Atlanta, Darnold and Carolina, and Trask in Tampa. Um, let's see. Derek Carr would be the best QB in that division. Absolutely. Second would probably be Darnold. Third? I'd say Trask third. Ritter mm-hmm. four? Yeah. So, I mean, you'd have the third best QB in that thing. But, I mean, Trask could look good because, I mean, the surrounding supporting cast around him. I mean, you've got a top five wide receiver tandem and Chris Godwin and uh, Mike Evans. Mike Evans. So, Absolutely. I mean, that could, that could make Kyle Trask pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly out there, but it's definitely definitely bold statements yeah. at the end of February. Or they could. That GM just be throwing a little smoke bit of screen. smoke screen there and saying, oh, yeah, we're not going to take a QB, and then come draft day or something, they're going to go try and get a QB. Absolutely. That's the draft season because, like, no one knows what any teams are doing. Mm-hmm. Like, the fans, like, the hardcore fans of, like, any NFL team are like, oh, we know our team. No, you don't. Yeah. No one knows what your team is doing except the GM and the owner. That's it. Until draft day. Until draft day. Well, maybe the head coach, too. Oh, head coach, excuse me. Head coach, GM, and owner. That's it. Yep. Until draft day, and then all hell breaks loose. Yes. Draft day is absolute madness. That's why it's, I love watching the draft. It's so much Absolutely. fun. Absolutely. And we'll leave it at that here for the NFL Talk. Step aside briefly. One final segment, again, looking at Ron Hextall's comments from his recent press conference after Kisperi Kapanen was placed on waivers. We'll be right back with those right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Ready to go. 
here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. One final segment, briefly before we wrap things up this afternoon. Ron Hextall's latest comments in his afternoon press conference. Hextall starting it out by simply talking about Kisperi Kapanen, saying that his plans for the trade deadline are to make the team better this year and years beyond made that commitment with sticking with the core. So right there, there there might be some speculation that the Penguins aren't done making moves and that Kapanen was just the starting block of them. Hextall going on to say that he believes the team can still make the playoffs. The prices are high for trades, as they always are, but they're going to continue to monitor things, make them better. And Hextall specifically talking about the bottom six, saying that players in the bottom six haven't fit. Trying to give Mike Sullivan and his coaching staff options because of the tight salary cap situation, but they are trying to adjust things now here at the deadline. That might be a little bit too little too late, but then when you look specifically at Kapanen, Hextall saying that Kapanen, at one point, two years ago, had 30 points in 40 games. That they felt like last season was a down year for Kapanen, and he would bounce back. Hextall saying that Kapanen was a half a point per game guy, thinking that he can still be a productive player, but it hasn't worked out here for him. And then, of course, everyone knew this was going to be coming. Hextall asked about the chance last night again directed at him the fire Hextall chance he knew that those were essentially imminent he's been in that situation before where he's been jeered as a player and basically saying that that's what's going to happen when you're a general manager but overall you know it seems like Ron Hextall is interested in making this team better at the deadline. Whether or not it happens, that, of course, is a different story. And, again, we have to wait and see what actually happens with that, who the Penguins actually go out and acquire, if anybody. Mike Sullivan is very fond of Jake Chikrin of the Arizona Coyotes. However, the Coyotes are wanting at least two first-round draft picks for Chikrin, which is quite absurd. And Hextall also went on to say that the Penguins aren't interested in acquiring rentals, which is something that, again, differs his philosophy from that of Jim Rutherford. Rutherford was very big on going out and getting a rental or going out, maybe you get a guy for the remaining portion of this season and then one following year after that. Rutherford was very much focused on thinking in the short term to go out and win that Stanley Cup, go all in. Hextall is much more of seeing the bigger picture. And in a way, I respect and understand both philosophies with that. But at the same time, you have very limited time 
with Chris Letang, with Evgeny Malkin, with Sidney Crosby. Now is the time that you need to go all in. I think fans, and again, this is just me speaking my opinion here, but I would imagine that a large portion of the fan base would share a similar sentiment. Most fans would be much more content. You've got five years maybe left of Malkin, Latang, Crosby, six, seven possibly at the most. If you can get one more Stanley Cup out of those three, that would be a success. And I feel like a lot of fans would be okay with having a few down years for the Penguins. Maybe not being a bottom dweller competing in the lottery for the number one overall pick, but having down years fighting to be in that top 10 of the NHL draft kind of a down year if it meant that they got one more Stanley Cup out of Crosby, Malkin, and Latang, Because at that point then, that core would have won four Stanley Cups. I mean, you can't ask anything more of them to go out there and win if they go out and win their fourth Stanley Cup together. I mean, the only thing at that point that you could ask for would be for them to do a, to win a fifth. But if that group wins five Stanley Cups together, first of all, that's absolutely amazing. But that right there would be enough to justify down years. One is a reasonable expectation. Two is a dream. So I think while I understand where Ron Hextall is going with wanting to sustain competitiveness beyond the Crosby, Malkin, Latang era, you also have to be willing to go deeper in to get cups with them while you can. So in my opinion, I would think Ron Hextall would want to do a bit of a hybrid approach where at the trade deadline, you're going to want to go out and bring in rentals or like the Rutherford style where you get them for the remainder of this year and an additional year afterwards, get bring in those guys at the deadline. And then when you're in the offseason free agency, then at that point, you can look to sign guys to multi-year deals. And if that would be the approach Hextall would take, as long as it continued to make the team better, I would have no problem with it. But, again, run Hextall at the same time, and I hate to go down this road. I absolutely hate to do it, but it could be true. So I'm going to take a second here and let you sink this in because it is quite possible. Ron Hextall could very easily just be going out there like he did today in that press conference, media availability, whatever you want to call it, and blowing smoke up people's rear ends to get t- create talking points and shut people up about the Penguins not doing anything by him going and saying that they are actively trying to make moves. They're constantly evaluating the market. Yes. Is every team going to be evaluating the market at this time of the year? Absolutely. But at the same time, though, it's a matter of how active they are on the market. How much time do they spend looking at things, making phone calls, trying to establish trades, finessing the salary cap? I mean, how much time and effort are they putting into that? Are they doing the bare minimum and going out there now and saying that they're looking into things? Or are they legitimately trying to make this team better? Because there's two, those 
are two different levels. And I feel like Ron Hextall knows that the Penguins are limited with the number of opportunities left for Crosby, Malkin, and Latang to win a Stanley Cup. Ron Hextall would love to win a Stanley Cup as general manager. And if he can find a way to work his magic somehow and get things done, then the Penguins would be extremely satisfied with that. But again, Ron Hextall has a lot of work to do and very little time left to do it. I mean, the trade deadline is a week from today. So this time next Friday, we are going to have lots to talk about right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show as far as the latest surrounding the trade deadline. Any moves that the Penguins might make between when I get off the air here in just a minute or so, between then and 2 o'clock p.m. Friday. Next Friday, that is. If any moves are made, what are they? How are they going to impact the team? And if anything isn't done, then, I mean, at any point, this show could be go. This show could go from a segment about the Pirates spring training to getting breaking news about the Penguins and a trade they made. That's the name of the game. That's the way business rolls, and you got to talk about the latest news. Just like today's show started with the breaking news of Kapanen being put on waivers. That's the name of the game, and you got to talk about what's relative and what's new. I thank you all for tuning in here on this Friday afternoon. Once again, next Friday, 2 o'clock, the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Drew Von Sayo saying have a great weekend, and we'll be right back here a week from today. See you later, everyone.